It's that time again for the assault on your ears we call Lore Dorks, a Star Trek Lore Dex podcast. I'm Aaron, and with me as always is Stavros. Tonight on our screens is episode 10 of season 2, First Contact, not to be confused with the movie, and <laughs> in our cups is a black Russian. Yes, indeed. Not to be confused with the individual. <laughs> Do we know a black Russian? I don't. Anyway, let's talk about the drink. Um, so my Black Russian is made up of Kahlua and Tito's vodka, just because I like Tito's and Kahlua I feel, feel like is a no-brainer there. I am drinking my drink in my Cerritos Bar Logo Rocks glass that I mentioned last week, which is great. You can get one on your StarTrek.com shop if you want. I have actually never had a Black Russian before. I've had lots of White Russians, but never a Black Russian. It's It's simple, and I like it. I don't have a lot of complaints. I feel like I like both of these ingredients. It's kind of fun to sip. It's a far cry from our whiskey that we've had before. How do you feel about it? Well, you know, it's my, uh man, I don't want to go to the store and <laughs> pick up some cream yes. drink. Yeah, that's true. Uh, of course, I am drinking Rare Reserve because I am a cheap bastard. <laughs> Hey, you know, as long as we're having a tasty beverage when we're talking about Lower Decks, I think that's all that matters. Indeed. <laughs> well, shall we talk a little bit about this episode? That is what uh, the show what is about, right? This? I know, right? <laughs> so this episode is called First First Contact, I believe. Um, and in this, in this episode, the Cerritos is dispatched with the USS Archimedes to make first and second contact with the Laparians. But danger abounds as the Archimedes falls victim to a power drain effect and plummets towards the unsuspecting aliens. Meanwhile, Mariner lets slip that the captain has been approved for a transfer to a bigger, better starship. Uh, the bigger, better starship being jail? <laughs> I mean, you're right, but come on, man. Spoilers. Ah, my bad. <laughs> For those watching at home, spoiler alert? Yeah, I mean, we're kind of assuming that people have seen the episode before we start talking about it, to be honest. so I think Seriously, if you're watching this episode and you're not watching the show, wh- what are you doing? What a, man? Stop this immediately and just go watch the episode instead. Like, <laughs> I, I totally understand being dedicated to the meta, but y- you've taken it too far. <laughs> well, guys, there's so much to talk about in this episode. I actually had, so if you recall, the episode starts with the Cerritos and the Archimedes docked at a starbase. I don't really, I don't think they give the starbase number, but it looks kind of like Earth Space Dock. Yeah, it's very ESD. Yes, yes. I think, yeah, they've shown, I want to say the first episode of last season, they show a a similar uh, starbase. But anyway, there's an establishing shot with the starbase. And you know, you and me, I like to freeze frame and look at all the little weird details. There are a bunch of ships out there. I think these are the same ships we've seen in the in the season one starbase shots but this is like the second time we're getting teased with these i really want to know like and they're kind of far away and zooming in doesn't help because they're low res but i really want to see more of these ships have we seen these before i feel like these at least a few of them are very disco inspired they they've got be. that delta engineering hull with the round saucer yeah i either way I, i'm pretty sure i've seen them in, in season one but either way i want to see more of these like they're obviously just been designed as little background features which is nice but i want to see more of them because of course i like seeing all the things but uh in admiral freeman's office <laughs> you know th- this is the shot where they're you know talking about captain freeman's promotion and all that I, I did you notice that the office is basically has the exact same layout as the california class ready room some, some yeah, budget i feel there. like 
I feel like the background painter was probably working from a template. <laughs> that makes sense. That makes sense. But a cool little detail there, you know, they've got the the captain's shelves, or the, I guess, Admiral in this case, his, his shelves of knickknacks, and there, there was a little Akira class on the shelf there, which I don't think we've seen in the show so far. So cool to yeah. see that little detail on there. Also, wildly inappropriate for a officer to be receiving job assignments from her husband yeah you'd think there would be a some kind of rule against that but i don't know yeah well it's the uh, starfleet of the future perhaps <laughs> things are more evolved to where they don't let their personal feelings influence their decision making <laughs> i mean they let the daughter on you know have her commanding officer be her mom so who knows? I think all of these rules have fallen by the wayside. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I mean, interesting thing. Do you know why those rules exist in the modern U.S. military that family members cannot serve together? I feel like it's a judgment call thing, but what, what is the reason? So it actually has to do with family members serving together either on the same ship or in the same unit. If that unit is overrun, if they are eliminated, you can potentially eliminate entire family lines in one go and this actually happened one of my not my ancestor obviously but a great 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 cousin their entire family line no longer exists now because all of their sons served in world war ii Mm. and all of them died in the same battle in the same unit yikes well i can see that reasoning then for sure but i guess the uh, these guys didn't get the memo (laughs) Um, let's see what else in this scene. Oh, uh, one thing I thought you would you would have picked out is we've talked before about how the Cerritos crew is kind of getting judged and treated differently than the rest of Starfleet. And there's more evidence of that in this scene where Captain Gomez says that Starfleet likes consistency with crews, whatever that means. So it's it's kind of like, you know, you've got the quote unquote pros, you know, that are on the Archimedes and the Titan and stuff. And then the chaff in the California class. You know, and this is kind of a departure from what we've seen before. There's been a couple of hints of this. Right. The motion picture, which I have mentioned is one of my favorite movies. (laughs) That's true. Movie, but I'm afraid to admit it. (laughs) And also the Voyager pilot episode. There is this reference to these crews. They're basically built as a unit for a ship, right? Right. And that kind of jives with what we saw in TNG, TOS, DS9. These crews come together and they serve for a very long duration together. Sure. TMP, they mention that the Enterprise is a whole new Enterprise. It's got a crew that is trained and worked together preparing for launch. Mm. Whereas this seems to imply that that's not really the case. They don't follow that. Mm. Now, there's been hints to that in other places. But I actually liked that concept. It has a very much a nasa mission inspired Mm. uh feel to it yeah versus a you know military naval inspired feel yeah i can see that interesting but yeah i mean it's it's again this part of this show i mean obviously the california class and the cerritos you know get jobs that no one else likes so the fact that they're given you know straight up said that they don't they don't like to move these these crews off these ships i don't know it's it's again it's just the i I can see the logic in what you're saying but the fact that they get treated differently is something that you know i mean they're they're starfleet right like they need to be they need to be treated the same way 
Yeah, it's it's kind of bothersome that there is that disparity that they keep bringing up in Lower Decks. And I get that it's all played for laughs, but yeah. it does definitely not play well for the overall like Star Trek theme. Right. It's even to the point of the uniforms where you can tell if like which strata of Starfleet a given officer is in based on like which uniform they're in. It's either the first yeah. contact style where they're legit or the lower deck style where they're not as legit or they're more humdrum. And that was actually something I liked in DS9 is when they started off, they wore those jumpsuits. Right. But as the series kind of went along and suddenly they were playing bigger roles. Right. They didn't immediately change their uniform. Their uniform only changed when it was implied by the series there was a sweeping uniform code change. Right. Of course, now this throws that all out the window. (laughs) That's true. I mean, yeah, at least in DS9, you know, when when the show started out, you had the jumpsuits, which was like station personnel, and then the like TNG uniform, which was more like Starship crew kind of implication i think yeah and that that goes to the whole visual classification thing um in tos every ship had its own emblem which was a visual classification yeah good point before the delta became the universal symbol of starfleet well i guess we'll uh, we'll see what they do with that eventually i hope they eventually you know elevate the status of the crew and I don't know. It's kind of a conflict with the with the you know premise of the show, but it's kind of it's weird and jarring to see like two different starship crews get treated so differently. But but speaking of starships, <laughs> let's talk about the Archimedes, uh, captained by Sonia Gomez. Um, the Archimedes itself. So according to my cookman, he's tweeted about this, and therefore it's now memory alpha. It is an Obina class starship, um, and that is named after the art director on Lower Decks, whose name is Nolan Obina or Obena. I'm not sure quite how's it, how it's pronounced um, and to me it looks like a big excelsior with a few key changes there are n- kind of sovereign style nacelles on it and the struts are i think different than what you would see on a on a classic uh excelsior. yeah they're they're straight rather mm-hmm. than an l shape that's right and then the deflector looks kind of sovereign it's not a blue color it's kind of that i want to say like a yellowish color and then the saucer on the on the i believe on the excelsior it's like a very circular like a perfect circle saucer but here it's more ovular uh, which kind of gives it more of a like a sovereign kind of feel to it yeah it's it's very much from a visual standpoint appears to be an attempt to create a movie error excelsior but uh movie error movie error <laughs> excelsior jeez. Oh, <laughs> but you know there's also a lot of other details that i noticed about it like it's a lot bubblier the shapes and the flow is a lot more rounded and bulbous mm. yeah than the original excelsior yeah would be really interested to climb into the head of the guy who did that design <laughs> Maybe we should find this guy on social media or something. But yeah, it's, it's kind of cool to see uh, the name, uh, name uh, the naming structure being done after one of the guys that works on the show. It's kind of neat to see. But unfortunately, the ship gets you know disabled before it can really show off anything. <laughs> it basically just exists and then gets the power drain and then nothing else happens. Uh, but a couple other cool details about it. I noticed on the bridge, especially in the some of the first shots where you see Captain Gomez behind her, you can see that there is a... Um, an MSD, a master systems display that shows the schematic of the ship behind her. 
and it's very reminiscent of what we've seen on the bridge of previous Excelsior class ships, even down to like the color style. Like on the Cerritos, the you know the L cars computer coloring is very like TNG colored, whereas the MSD here is blue shaded, which is very evocative of the of the toss movies so very clear referencing happening there i think well yeah and that was one of the things that i noticed about it was it was not the cerrito style visuals right but i picked up it seemed to have a lot of the tng movie era so i'm thinking mm. that it was a like from a design standpoint it looks a lot like they looked at the movies as a whole and tried to like synthesize all those different aspects into one visual language and it, mm. it looks good I, I can't deny that yeah totally i was kind of surprised i was like what are they doing to the excelsior when they had it in the promo shots but i mean hard to deny that it looks pretty smexy when you see it on screen uh, but let's see let's talk about the captain Sonia gomez and you know if if you're not familiar this is a returning character um that appeared on tng two episodes actually uh Q-Hu. And Samaritan Snare, where she's uh, an engineering ensign working under uh, Jordi LaForge. Um, and yeah. if the name doesn't sound familiar, she's the one that is kind of a hyper nervous wreck and spills a mug of hot chocolate on Captain Picard. Yeah, and that's the interaction everybody remembers. I literally <laughs> do not remember her from Samaritan Snare. Yeah. It's really only the, her first appearance that I uh, recall. Yeah. But yeah, hyperactive. And I think that's a great, great choice to do a callback for. Because you see so much in the characterization with, you know, Boimler. And oh, yeah. who he was, or mm-hmm. is, as an ensign. Yeah, great. That you're just like, it, it really feeds into that narrative story that they're trying to tell of Boimler's path. Totally. Yeah, I didn't I didn't recognize that, but you are totally right. She's very reminiscent of of how Boimler is now. So, that's kind of neat to see. Oh, and I should I should mention that they actually got the actress uh, Lysha Naff to do the voice for Sonia Gomez, the same actress who like, you know, looking at her uh, filmography, she was very active in like the mid to late 80s and early 90s and not a lot since then. So the fact that they got her to come back and do this recurring character, pretty cool. Yeah, you see that a lot in Star Trek. There are a lot of actors who like have either minor or major roles and they they are there briefly, they show up, they have this acting career and then they move on. And I just right. I really like that cuz it very much humanizes a lot of like people have this weird view of actors and who they are as people. Mm. And they feel to realize that they are people first and foremost and some people they're going to be actors for their entire life right and some people are going to do it for a time and then move on to yeah. their next big adventure yeah that's right but yeah very cool to see that at least uh, pulling like a, just a pretty random tng how do you call it guest star but a minor character into the into the show i love this kind of stuff and it's if you didn't know if you, if you haven't watched tng recently or you're not a huge uh you know tng rewatch person like perhaps the average internet-based star trek fan you might not even recognize her it took me a second too when she when she came on but still cool <clears throat> they they especially call back to the uh the splashing hot chocolate on picard scene when an ensign kind of you know eats <laughs> eats dust uh, on the bridge trips and falls and she's like well you know when i was an ensign i you know had a much more hard-ass captain than i embarrassed myself in front of i was like ah, i see what you did there yeah definitely a fantastic callback and i do want to point out that and now I'm forgetting her name. What the heck is her name? <laughs> Gomez? Yeah, the actress. Oh, Lysha Naff. Yes. 
Yeah, so she has continued to do acting since then, mm. but she doesn't have a lot of television and film credits. Just, you know, moved on and is doing other things. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, definitely not. So let's talk about the the meat of this episode, which is the main plot, the the first contact mission and the fallout and the rescue mission that results from that. Um, I thought it was pretty funny when the Cerritos gets kind of assigned to follow the Archimedes in. You know, the Cerritos, of course, the second contact ship. You know, of course, the the good ship, the quote-unquote good ship, the Archimedes, going in to do the actual first contact. And hilariously, the Cerritos gets to just, like, hang out right outside the system because they've got transponders to install. You know, they've, they've, got, they've got, like, a little engineering job to do on this uh, alien ship. Um, and they, they've just got to like park outside the system and wait for the Archimedes to do their thing. Um, kind of, kind of sad. I'm surprised like Freeman was like, oh yeah, this is fine. Where I'm like, oh man, they just get to like sit in the back and wait so they don't scare yeah. off the natives. <laughs> Send in the first contact and second contact ship at the same time. Like back to back, right? That has got to be an ego bruise right there. <laughs> like, man, like way to tell them that like, it makes sense that there's ships whose responsibility is to follow up on stuff. Yeah. But, like, sending them at the same time <laughs> as the first contact ship is just... Man, yeah. it's basically just saying straight up, we don't trust you. <laughs> I like they kind of brushed off. It's like, well, we don't want to seem like an invasion force. But, you know, in other episodes, they've it kind of is implied that, like, the first contact team has, like, been gone for a while. Like, it's never been back-to-back like this. I mean, that's not the implication, at least. So, really embarrassing. <laughs> but it works for the plot, so I guess you can't complain too much. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, that's also kind of a humorous callback to uh, the original series, where, like, the whole premise of the show is the Starship Enterprise boldly going where, at the time, no man has gone before. Right. Because, you know, misogyny. But... <laughs> They've spent like half their episodes going to places people have gone before. That's true. That's true. Whereas now it seems like Starfleet is much more organized <laughs> and much more organized and much more categorized to where everyone has a role. And sorry, dude. Listen, Kirk. I, I know we need somebody to go check out Beta Iridini, and I know you're the closest captain. <laughs> We got ships for that. You just keep going. That's keep right. Keep going where just no one thing. has gone before. Yeah, keep exploring. We got people for this. <laughs> uh, but speaking of uh, convenient plot devices, having the solar flare erupt immediately when the you know ships show up seemed pretty darn convenient. I mean, I get it. They need to create a you know plot for uh, saving the Archimedes, but having it like mysteriously happen right when the two ships get there was. It was a little, uh, a little belief, you know, disbelief, or what am I trying to say? Suspension of disbelief shaking, even for me. Uh-oh. Am I going to have to put on my science hat? Yes, please. Do you have okay, so everything wrong with this scene. <laughs> they explain early on that the planet is slightly off the planar ecliptic, yet in every... Visual, they represent the planet as on the planar ecliptic. Mm. This also holds true in the fact that when the Excelsior updated ship is hit by the strange planetoid, it immediately is launched into the orbit of the alien planet. 
If right. they were off the planar ecliptic, why is this happening? Hmm. You also run into the problem with, as you mentioned, the solar flare immediately just randomly erupting to hit the strange planet. But the question is, the strange planet was on an orbit closer to their star than the alien planet. Right. So why in the heck did they not approach from outside the solar system? Even <laughs> if when they had arrived within its orbit... This alien planet was on the far side of the star. They're supposed to be entering into orbit with that planet. Why would they not come in at an angle and allow the star's gravity and the planet's gravity to capture it? <laughs> yes. Nothing about this scene makes sense. <laughs> Frankly, McMahon, yeah. <laughs> I am appalled. 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 It's appalling. But, you know, to be honest... They straight up, like, so when they're, after the planetoid erupts and they're trying to troubleshoot the way into there, you know, one character's just like, can we just, like, warp past it? And, like, everyone just kind of clamors and shoots down the idea. I mean, it's a ra- it's a pretty obvious plot. I mean, wouldn't you just warp out of the system and then change your trajectory and then warp back to the Archimedes? I feel like that's, like, a very fourth wall breaking, you know, okay, we get it. Like, there's plot holes. It's fine. We're just going to continue on with this. Yeah, your boy Shax is the one who... Or not Shax. Your boy... Uh, oh, man. What is his name? Um, the dude <laughs> nobody cared guy. about. Yes. Kayshawn. Yes. Uh, yeah, Gaythong. Uh, your boy <laughs> wow. Gaythong uh, is the one who interjects. And everybody immediately goes into full crazy mode. And I wish I had had the time to listen to all of the arguments. Yeah. But this is a callback to a problem with Star Trek as a whole. They can never decide the rules of warp because there is a scene where they mention going to warp within a star system is a bad idea. Right. And then they do it all the time. All the time. They mention that going to warp in a planetary well is a bad, or planetary, gravity (laughs) Gravity well well. is a bad idea. And they do it. They do it all the time. Yeah. So you know what? There may actually be a reason why this is a bad idea, but you know what? There's no consistency. It's obvious. I mean, they're doing the fourth wall breakage. They wanted to construct a plot and they did it. But speaking of the, of the, you know, moving on with the plot, like I, as far as the removing the hull plating as a solution to the problem, I thought that was cool. We got a nice, cool view of the, for, for lack of a better word, naked Cerritos. Something I thought was really neat was, were the uh, little disconnection panels you know, where they kind of twisted the little thing and it pops off the hole panels. Um, that's a clear callback to Star Trek First Contact when they're disengaging the deflector dish. Um, it basically looks exactly like those little, I don't know what you really call them, like gauges or little interaction thingamabobs. That, w- that was cool to see. Kind of an interesting thing that you never really thought you'd see in a show like this. And, you know, they show, I mean, speaking of crazy things you've seen in this show, I mean, this is just one of the many like kind of animation expensive things we've seen in this episode what a jump in quality i know we've mentioned it before but seeing this kind of stuff happen is pretty darn cool especially compared to season one yeah so uh rest in peace lieutenant hawk (laughs) but yeah it's a very cool scene but you know again it's one of those things where like you watch it and like i get that there's the whole comedy and drama aspect to it right but you're like why would you design anything like this? You know, why would it not be something that's controllable from the bridge or main engineering? Right. Why would it not be something where it's just like, oh yeah, it's self-destruct mode. Only it's Pop off the whole plating, plating mode. mode. Yeah. <laughs> like 
In first contact, you can explain it away. Oh, the ship's taken over by the Borg, so they've lost complete control of the ship. But right. here, you're just like, <laughs> oh, you did it for some fun callbacks. You know, speaking of the animation, you know, seeing the close-ups of the thrusters when the Cerritos is maneuvering through the debris field was actually really cool and and goes towards, you know, the evidence of the better animation for this for this season. Yeah, no, you know, I actually, like, I don't know why this appeals to me, but, like, the scene where they are firing the thrusters. Right. The maneuvering thrusters. Right. Ah, oh, man, that just appeals to me on so many levels. You don't see that often. But every time I do, I'm just like, ooh, I love this. Especially when they're, like, firing in the right direction. Yes. Yeah, you don't really see it that often in Star Trek because, you know, the ships are going, I don't know, you don't, you just don't see the level of detail. So seeing it this, yeah. this close up, not only super cool and kind of tickles the nerd bone, but, I mean, they're, they're spending a lot of money on the animation here, and it's hard to argue with the results. It looks very, very neat. Yeah, no, they've really done an A-plus job with their visuals this season. You know, that was not just the visuals, though. The visuals, the audio, like yes. the music. Whoever is their musical director, yeah, oh my god. The guy knows what he's doing. Not making enough money, I can guarantee you that. <laughs> well, speaking of the music, if any of the listeners don't know, they, I believe the composer is a man named Chris Westlake, and they have just released the soundtrack for Lower Decks. I think it's a combination of season one and two, although our listeners can correct us on that. But you can actually go and purchase the soundtrack. They are giving him a little bit of glory for that, the sound work he's done on the show. I mean, definitely deserves it. Uh, The sound design on this show is fantastic. I think there may also be a character named after him. Is there? I have to look into that. I want to say yes. He's a background character, obviously. Oh, yeah, sure. One of those persons who, if you don't pay attention to the credits, you don't know he's there. (laughs) Makes sense. Uh, speaking of random references during the plot, though, it's when he's when the ship is maneuvering through the debris field, Ransom gets his uh, manual steering column like like Riker does in Insurrection. It doesn't pop out of the floor like it does in Insurrection. It kind of just pops out as a um, addition to his chair on the bridge. But kind of a neat little callback there. You don't see joysticks pop up that often in Star Trek. Oh boy, am I going to have to offend the fan base again? Uh oh. As long as you're not talking about Tuvix, I think we'll be all right. Why, why you got to try and segue like that? <laughs> uh, not going to talk about Tuvix. Joysticks are dumb. <laughs> Uh-oh. So, you're not a fan of the manual steering column? No, and it's something that was always like... And I remember like growing up with this fandom, and they'd always be like, yeah, how come they're always pushing buttons? What about, what about, what about? Right. And I'm just like... So here's the thing. You're on a spaceship. A spaceship that is not... It's not a dinghy. Right. It's not a 16-footer. Mm-hmm. It is a ginormous spaceship operating in three dimensions right. across kilometers of space at a minimum right. and AUs at a maximum for maneuvering. Sure. Why, why are you maneuvering this thing by hand? <laughs> like, everything should be about writing programs, mm. navigational programs... That tell the ship where to go, that are taking into account its shape, its width, its length, the things that are around it. And the ship should be warning them, oh, this will cause a collision. Mm-hmm. Why would you ever do manual controls? <laughs> it's just... The power's down, man. Someone's got to do it. it. Might as well be your boy Ransom. Dumb. If the power's down, you don't have controls at all. 
<laughs> I got the critique. There is no analog controls going on here. He is not moving that joystick forward and the aft thrusters are opening their porthole. Well, you know what? I feel like this is just another one of the plot holes that we're going to have to conveniently forget about in order to make this episode work. Everyone's going to yell at you when you talk about joysticks, just like uh, Kayshawn. Looked cool as shit, though. <laughs> Hard to argue with how it looks. That's true. But going on with with more of this actual plot that's happening here, do you remember this scene where the native Lapirians are in their little city and they look up and they see a falling star and they're like wow look at that so cool and then one of the dads like picks up the young Lapirian is like look son slash daughter can't tell which one it is and it's like wow look at that cool little thing and but you know that the ship crashing into the planet will cause catastrophic damage that that shot was like super dark like i was watching that and i was like whoa <laughs> what is up with lower decks and just know. subtle darkness <laughs> like who who on the writing staff is all like yeah we need to uh, put something in this episode that's horrifying but most people won't pick up on Yes, and you know, uh, Mike McMahon himself wrote this episode. He wrote the first and last episode of this season, so... Oh, so it's know McMahon. Who That's who we have to blame. <laughs> He's like, mwahaha, working in these dark scenes, and it's just like, wow, dude, is, is this what the show is? This isn't a comedy? <laughs> it's a short shot, but still. That actually leads me to a secondary thought I had on that scene and the overall arc okay. of the hell is the name of that ship why the obana class yes uh, archimedes mm-hmm. so their power gets lost mm-hmm. just no power whatsoever and they're going through everything in various scenes to try and resolve this problem but nothing has power right except life support but that's the question why does life support have power but know. it doesn't necessarily have to have power you know maybe the onboard air is sufficient enough to yeah. survive for 20 hours yeah but here's a bigger question if they lose power, what's containing the warp core? Ooh. Why has their plasma, why has the anti-plasma, why is it not all combined to create an antimatter cascade that right. has destroyed the ship? Great question. I think another plot hole that we will, that we, everyone will yell, yell at you about. I think the in-universe explanation could be extra shielding for the antimatter containment pods, but... You're right. It's not yeah, explained. and you know, it, it may be one of those things where like antimatter containment only requires a magnetic component. Mm. So while they are containing the antimatter with ferrous magnets rather than electromagnets, right. potentially when the power fails, everything's fine because you still have that non-powered magnet component that is maintaining the magnetic cohesion of the warp core. Yeah. Is there a description of how antimatter is contained on board a starship? Because this is not the first starship to lose power that doesn't instantly explode. So I wonder if there's an in-universe explanation for it. I'll have to look that up. If any listeners know, tweet us. How do why why didn't the ship instantly explode? You may never know. Uh, you know, plot contrived. <laughs> there you go. You you you're getting it. <laughs> Anyway, so let's uh, continue on with this plot. So kind of neat after the rescue, you know, so they successfully rescue the Archimedes and all that. And then, of course, the the Archimedes is in such bad shape that Captain Freeman herself actually gets to do the first contact. And, you know, we're going to get to exactly what's going on with Freeman a little bit later in this episode. But it felt good. It was a feel-good moment to get to see this crew in the 
you know, Cerritos uniforms, the not the second tier Starfleet uniforms, doing a real first contact, and then of course Mar- uh, Mariner. Mariner always gets sloshed, but Freeman gets sloshed in this case. It was great to see her actually get the opportunity to do that. I thought that was kind of humorous that Captain Freeman, as opposed to Beckett Mariner, is the one who gets sloshed in this episode. <laughs> but I also found it really interesting in that. She goes from drunk to sober in like zero seconds flat. Can you imagine, you know, I've just got to put this on hold, but there certain things happen with Freeman at the end of the episode. Can you imagine if she was like sloppy drunk during those entire shots? And then like the whole crew's there. That would have been not Which is funny because she's the one that is looking forward to the wild party. That is true. That is true. Yes, you're right. She does sober up pretty quickly. Uh, one other detail that I wanted to talk about is in, in this this main plot of the episode. So a bunch of ships, Starfleet ships, show up <clears throat> at the end of the episode to help with the Archimedes repairs and and you know help them recover. And we actually see a lot of familiar starships here. There is a can't tell if it's a Nova or Rhode Island class. I think it's Rhode Island, just because of. But I think the deflector may be like a like a yellowy color. So there are some aesthetic differences between the established Rhode Island class. Uh, but we do definitely see one of those. There's a Parliament class there, another California class, and another fan favorite makes an appearance. The Oberth class, which is still in service for some reason, <laughs> is there to uh, tractor beam. You know, it's one job you can tell by the exterior shots. Tractor beaming in the cell. That's the only way. That's the only reason why it's there. Just hanging onto in the cell, waiting for it to reattach. Yeah. The Rhode Island, famously the class that was introduced, being commanded by commander ransom's brother captain ransom that's right that's my head cannon and i'm sticking to it (laughs) yes it was cool to see that all of these uh, familiar faces show up but you know speaking of of these familiar faces there are a, a couple small ships in these exterior shots so it's the exterior shot where the you know they're tractor beaming the the cell and all that and then there's the subsequent shot in the bar where they're you know celebrating and all that and you can see outside the windows there are a couple small smaller ships that i didn't recognize they're so small it's hard to get a lot of detail out of them but i didn't recognize them i did you were you managed to pull any details out that you that i'm not familiar of or were you able to identify these ones yeah, no, not at all. There, There is a few smaller ships. One of them looks like a worker bee with, like, extra bits attached. Right. Uh, one of them feeling like, like a warp uh, in a cell. Right. And then there's the other weird, like, blocky thing, which has, like, a very TOS feel to it. Yeah. I'm thinking it's some sort of, like, Federation tug of some variety. Right. Yeah, definitely. Lots of new stuff in this scene. Yeah, I'm adding it to the pile of like very small, low-detail ships that I want to see more of. <laughs> Hopefully one day we will. You know, this episode has really reminded me of one of those questions I've always wondered about. Their space shots are like getting increasingly complex. Yes. But they also don't show the level of animation variance you often see in hand-drawn animation. So I'm always kind of wondering if this is actually, like, all CG, 3D Mm. CG. Yeah. You know, something developed in, like, Maya or Lightwave, for those who remember the 90s. (laughs) I'm just kind of wondering, what's the process here? I would love to see them do a feature like they used to do for uh star trek back in the 90s and Mm. 80s yeah where it's you know it's just a documentary on how things are made yeah 
I mean, we have the name of the man responsible for all this. It's uh, Nolan Obina. So maybe he can, you know, do an interview and, and, and tell us more about what's actually going on here. Oh, if, if you could get that guy to come on <laughs> and do a uh, show, we'd have to drink less, though, because I'd need to be, like, really sober to talk to that guy. You know, I have it out because I have no idea how anything 3D works, so I guess I don't care. I can get as slush as I want. Yeah, I mean, uh, oof, we've we've covered a lot about the plot already, and wow, we're so there's so many things to talk about this episode. Let's move on. One of the biggest things we've talked about the Andorian Gen on this show before, and I believe you said that she deserved to be airlocked. I believe for your, you know, the paraphrase of what you thought needed to happen to her. Oh come on, don't hold things I've said in the past against me. I was drunk. Well, you know, we have a chance to revisit this because you know it's heavily implied that. Mariner and Jen may become a thing. They become they're get, they're getting shipped. How do you feel about yeah, that? You know, I'm always bashing on arc based storytelling, but you know what? It actually is working pretty well here because this isn't the first time that the Mariner Jen ship has been implied. That's right. In the episode where she is on the Naked Time storyline, she sees Jen and the Barnes. I think right. Lieutenant Barnes? Yes. Yeah. Is that her name? I think so, yeah. Yeah, she sees them hooking up and is immediately intrigued. <laughs> and you know what? I assumed that was just a quick joke. Right. But no, it looks like Mariner's probably bisexual and yeah. swings both ways and might have a thing for Jen and their conflict may be unrealized sexual tension. Yeah. I like to see this kind of uh, because you know you know a lot of the Mariner plot that comes up you know along with her conflict with her mom is because people she likes she's a jerk to <laughs> and that manifests a lot with Jen and her mom so definitely a symptom of whatever psychological issues Mariner is experiencing she really needs to see yeah. a competent psychologist and it's it's really done well in the callbacks to Cupid's errant arrow right and the episodes where Boimler is up for promotion and she sabotages it. Right. She's it's mean to people she likes. She, it's not even that she's mean to people she likes. She's so terrified of losing people she likes. Right. She simultaneously sabotages them or desperately attempts to keep them away. So she right. doesn't let those feelings grow. And that's a fantastic storyline to pursue. Totally. Not very Star Trek, mm. but if they play into people being supportive of that, like when Rutherford discovers, you know, her conflict with her mother and the, you know, we need to learn to let people in. Right. Just like Mariner needs to learn. I think that could be a really good storyline to follow. Totally. I'm kind of sad that Mariner's subplot hasn't, progressed more during this season because for a while we've identified that this is a problem right like she's you know coming from her trying to sabotage Boimler's assignments and this and that I mean she's shown time time and again during this season that she has this problem and I kind of wish there was a little bit more development here with Mariner specifically on this problem but I do like that it's I mean it's like very obvious and at least she's starting to realize that this exists and maybe she shouldn't be such a jerk to people she does like eg jen and her mom <laughs> it's easy to look at that and have a view of it like i'm i'm been talking about this for a long time i really want star trek to have a good episodic series but 
There is a way to do episodic series and still have arcs. And a part of that is slow growth, you know. Uh, Picard does this in TNG. Episodes like Home and Tapestry and just tons of episodes where he has like minor events. And they're major events for him, but for everybody else, they're just another day in the job. Right, And the fact that we don't just abandon those storylines, but we touch on them down the road. Best of Both Worlds, where he is assimilated, we touch on that multiple times in future episodes. And it shows tremendous character growth. Totally. But the story doesn't hinge on that. And that's a part of the problem with a lot of arc-based shows, is that they often fall into this trap of, we have to keep evolving characters. We have to keep forcing them to change and grow. And it's all like growth happens over years. It yeah. doesn't happen overnight. That's and true. if each season is an episode, or if each season is a year, you got to take a step back and be like, okay, let's let this linger for a while. Right. It's not relevant today, but it will be 10 episodes down the road. Yeah, you're totally right. That's a good way to look at it for sure. Yeah, I did hope that we would see a little bit more during this year, but at least the, she's 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 identified the problem, so that's enough, I, I guess, for now. But speaking of some other uh, characters on the show that have shown some development, let's talk about Boimler. Um, first off, Boimler's obsession with Freeman Day, and of course that Freeman Day is a reference to the TNG episode The Pegasus, where there's Picard Day on the show uh, on the ship, basically for the, for the children. Boimler, why you got why you got to steal the kids? stuff like you know according to the simulation that rutherford does on the cerritos there is at least a kindergartner board come on man just let let the kids make the sign why do you got to steal the thunder from the kids man it's kind of uh messed up i do kind of wonder though we haven't really seen much of children on the cerritos and they do mention as a kindergarten right is that for members of the crew's kids or is it a different take on it in that there aren't any kids on the Cerritos? And in fact, Boimler was doing this because it has become a common thing in Starfleet to have a Captain's Day. Right. And he feels sad that his captain doesn't get to experience this because there are oh, no think of that. or so few kids. <laughs> and so he's all like, no, I'm going to make this happen. Well, in that case, I have to applaud Boimler's uh, decision there. But he's, he, it's still a strange obsession, though, no matter how you yeah, slice it. super weird, and I'm <laughs> hella reaching to make this not seem creepy. <laughs> it's, it's his desperate need for, to be appreciated by the captain. Um, although, I will say, though, for Boimler specifically, when he... there's So there's a shot at Cetacean Ops, which we'll talk about later, but... Mariner tries to like force the issue. It's like she's going to be the one to go and jettison the last deck plating. But Boimler uh, and Tendi too like give her a piece of their minds. And Boimler standing up to Mariner. I mean, this is in complete in line with the development that we've seen with Boimler for this season so far, where he's much more of a confident badass now. And for him to not just capitulate to Mariner and something like this that needs to be done, it's not a book smart thing. It's a you know a physical act of heroism like for him to do that great i love that thumbs up well and you know what going back to arc based television and storytelling it really does a fantastic job of portraying how things have changed from episode one to now whose titles themselves are plays on each other second Mm. contact versus first contact right and a big element of this is 
they've grown not just as characters but as a group they are much more cohesive yes and they work as a unit and there's moments where members of your unit are not looking at the big picture mariner is so obsessed with her perceived role and who she is supposed to be she can't let go and do what needs to be done because there is a ticking time clock of (laughs) desperate need for heroic action and everybody else has to tell her no the real heroic action for you is to set your ego aside and go deal with this bigger problem that's facing us all yeah, you're right. I mean, it's all the way around. It's it's very cool to see. I think Tendi even says, we're your family, you know, damn it. <laughs> so seeing that come from the Lower Deckers, who were all in that scene together, and even from Mariner, very cool yeah. to see as a um, progression. And that your fam- your our family moment for the narrative of the episode is fantastic. Totally. Because one of the big things, like, especially given that earlier in the episode, it's kind of been hit on that Mariner herself is probably bisexual. Mm-hmm. There's this thing where a lot of the world today doesn't accept people for their sexuality right or for what they are attracted to and you know what there's there's truth that you know we probably shouldn't accept pedophiles <laughs> but there is a thing where a lot of people who are pursuing perfectly healthy and natural proclivities or preferences they wind up getting rejected by their family. Yeah. And there's this idea of this chosen family. And in this moment, her group is telling them, you know, we're your family. And I don't think that negates her parents, her Captain and Admiral Freeman parents. But I feel like this episode has really highlighted that there's something wrong with Mariner. That mm. something happened in her life that has led her down a path that is not healthy right uh, even captain freeman mentions you're not confident you used to be confident right yeah but totally. now you're not and now we're in this moment where they're saying you know hey you know we accept you as who you are and that can be an important step to establishing that like you aren't a bad person but you need to accept yourself and right. whatever happened in her past that has broken her she needs to deal with that and she needs to move on and accept her for who she is. And I think those parallel character arcs are going to play off each other really well. Totally. Yeah, I can't see where they go with this. I can see it's, I mean, we're two seasons in. It's obviously going to be a longer term thing, kind of unraveling what happened with Mariners. So I'm definitely waiting bated breath to see what they do with that next. Um, Let's see. Let's move on. Let's talk about Captain Freeman. Because that is a large part of the, especially the end of this episode. Captain Freeman, of course, at, at the beginning we learn she's kind of become eligible for some kind of promotion. Um, it's basically implied that it's for a bigger and better starship, <laughs> as we talked about. But of course, at the end she gets arrested. Although I want to say she, you know, she, she, you know, she gets outed to her senior staff earlier than she wanted to. You know, your boy Ransom, uh, his response when he learns that he's going to be left behind is that, but, uh, but I agree with you at all times. And that is not a good first officer job, man. I thought, I thought after last episode, he was going to be redeemed, but if that's true, th- he's not a good first officer, man. Redeemed? Ransom is deemed. She doesn't need to be redeemed. <laughs> he's been sullied that in this episode. I think that is one of those outburst moments where he's desperately trying to cling on to something, mm-hmm. and that is a life structure that he is afraid he is about to lose. 
<laughs> Whereas he has shown throughout the series that he doesn't always... He's not a sycophant. He doesn't immediately agree with the captain. Yeah. Or anyone, even after he learns that Mariner is the captain's daughter. He is frustrated by the captain's change in demeanor and behavior once she's after. Right. And I think that this is one of those excited outbursts that you kind of has to... Kind of has to... <laughs> kind of have to discount you're right now that i think about it yeah he he definitely brings up alternatives and questions the captain at the right time but perhaps the best upset senior staff member is billups who has the profanity laden frustration about how the california class crews don't come with them probably one of the even though we got a straight up billups episode so far i think that's my top three billups moments where he completely loses his mind that was an a plus huge billups character break and i think that is what makes it so fantastic (laughs) but yeah so so freeman keeps the promotion from them and of course she you know at the end of the episode she looks like she's qualified for it and you know starfleet command has some people that come aboard but the plot twist comes in we learn that she's getting arrested for uh, supposedly coordinating the destruction of packled planet you know they show a visual of packled planet it looks like it's not in very good shape. I don't know if you they say destroyed in the dialogue, but I don't know if the planet's completely destroyed, but at least, you know, catastrophic damage. Of course, we we don't think that Ken Freeman has had the opportunity to really do anything. Um they do mention in the previous episode that the Klingons gave another Veruvian bomb to the Pakleds there. But for some reason Mariner is getting a uh, Mariner. Freeman is getting blamed for this. And, you know, we're not going to learn about anything new until next season, but what was your reaction? Do you have any theories as to what is actually going on here? So, I think it was Section 31. Okay. It's a strong go-to. So, let's uh, take ten steps back. All right, more like one or two steps back. (laughs) Okay. There is a sub-sub-subplot of Rutherford dealing with the problems with his implant. Yes. It keeps generating error messages... And eventually, he decides to delete his redundant memories. Which, why was he keeping his redundant memories stored in the implant? If the implant fails, isn't he just going to lose those memories? It's kind of implied that all of his memories are in the implant. Like, he lost his... Well, I guess all the recent ones, I guess. Yeah, so maybe, like, upload to a external server, you know? Hmm. Uh, like, get a GeoCities account or something? <laughs> okay. I'm with you. But when he finally does reset, it plays this moment of his, you know, memories from the range of him having the implant. Right. And one of these memories is of them installing the implant. Right. So we had theorized previously that that implant was a Vulcan implant, Mm, right? Yes. But in this episode, it's implied that the implant was not installed as an elective. It was not his choice. Right. It also wasn't something after an accident. It was something that was installed with nefarious purposes. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, what if Section 31 is behind his implant install? And they're up to something that we're not seeing involving the Romulans and potentially the Klingons and, Hmm. of course, the Paclids. So you think this is uh, related to Captain Freeman getting arrested towards the end? It's all kind of balled up in one big conspiracy. I think so. The only real problem with this theory is the people who are installing the implants have round ears. Mm. So probably not Vulcans. I'm thinking Section 31. Okay. 
I think you could be right. I'm not sure that Freeman, because Freeman's being like nothing but decorations, honestly, in this season, especially, I think like nothing has gone horribly wrong. So for, for Starfleet to, you know, make a U-turn and suddenly say that she's under arrest. I don't know if that makes too much sense. I buy that maybe section 31 is involved, although that seems to be a well that the, the series goes there. The IP goes to a little bit too often for my taste, but I mean, it, I, I don't know if there, if she's being legitimately arrested for the pack of the planet destruction, I could see her. I mean, I, it's possible, but I, I'm going to go with, in my head canon, at least for now until next season that she's being recruited. She's, she's kind of the pack led expert right now, right? Like she's gone to the home planet uh, to try and negotiate with them. She's had the initial confrontations along with the Titan. She's getting recruited for something here. It's, it's kind of uh, reminiscent of chain of command where Picard gets transferred and that, you know, the enterprise gets uh, someone else as the captain. It, it feels very much like that to me. Make, I, I don't know if she's in trouble. I think she's getting recruited for, secret secret top secret stuff as far as the rutherford involvement though i don't know it could be it seems too coincidental for them to be both to be happening at the same time i don't know if i agree with that so one of the things in star trek there's this trope of the courtroom drama episode right matter of perspective from tng sure I mean, drumhead they've obviously already referenced yeah death wish from voyager which sure is a fantastic episode despite the hate voyager gets (laughs) i mean there's just so many uh menagerie yeah measure of a man big one of course measure of a man from tng right oh my god there's so many what is the uh voyager episode where paris is accused of murder yes another one you're talking about and of course the ds9 miles o'brien must suffer episode tribunal of course god there's so many there's an entire segment of a movie, The Undiscovered Country, right. that it's is based courtroom. around the courtroom drama. Mm-hmm. If we do not get a courtroom drama episode <laughs> in season three, yeah. where it's the trial of Captain Mariner, yeah, I'm just going to be like, McMahon, <laughs> I don't think you get Star Trek at all. <laughs> it could happen. Who knows? I'm not sure what direction they're going to go with. I choose to believe that she's being recruited for something something black ops type situation there but i think you're totally right they could go in the courtroom drama direction too hard to hard to make a determination at this point but i'm excited to see what happens i want to see boimler as a uh lawyer for captain freeman (laughs) would that be good though would you want a young a young gomez young sonia gomez spilling hot chocolate everywhere as we you know similarities with boimler and tazify The one episode. <laughs> they've already had a trial episode. That's true. That is true. Veritas, right? Yes, Veritas from season one. And when Boimler gets up on stage, he calls them out about how this whole thing is a sham. <laughs> and he references That's true. Drumhead. Drumhead. <laughs> maybe he is a good lawyer. I, th- I take that back. I think you're right. Man, wow. Maybe they do need to call him upon Boimler's skills there. Well, you know what we do need to talk about, though, is the best ship that there is in this series and that is tenderford i know you disagree but bear with me uh we you mentioned rutherford's issues with his implant uh his implant earlier um and you know why he's doing that is because he's afraid of losing all of his memories with tendy and there are a couple scenes where they i feel like they they did a little tear jerking there's the spacewalk scene where 
Billups identifies the issue where he's triplicating his memories and you know he's he's looking at Tendi he's like I'm not I'm going to miss all my my memories with Tendi and then you know when when he and Tendi are kind of going around the ship making you know revisiting their favorite spots you know I I got the I got the tear in the eye and I was like I'm complete. I feel completely justified. Look, look, just stop where you're going. <laughs> I'm just saying. I, this is more and more I evidence. I can admit. I can admit when I'm defeated. <laughs> this is a very endearing relationship, and like every episode where they focus on it, it definitely is moving towards it being romantic, and they're doing it in a really good way. I'm glad they're not shipping Boimler and Mariner because yeah. that is not a good ship at all. No, but you know what? As much as I wanted Rutherford and Billups to be the ship of the show, I don't think that's that's in the cards. <laughs> um, Billups appears to be on a different path and Rutherford and Tendy's relationship is oh, it's just so endearing. It is. It's, it's really hard to look at that with any negativity. <laughs> You know, there's this one, uh, the shot when they're in the Jeffrey's tubes and Rutherford is like, can I tell you something? And you're fully expecting him to be like, you know, say something romantic. But no, he confesses his love for the ship as well. It's this weird, like, kind of three-party relationship where it's Tendi, Rutherford, and the Cerritos together. But you know what? I don't care. That just facilitates my ship even more. It's a ship because of a ship. And I'm okay with that. A ship, ship, ship. I get it. It's uh, hard to argue. And you know what? That's one of those things that is a truth in relationships is there's a moment where admitting something you don't want to admit to a potential romantic partner and having them reciprocate the same admission, that's a powerful thing, even if it isn't a shared love. Yeah, I think you're right. But I'm glad to see that progress. Um, one interesting thing I wanted to mention about where Rutherford deletes the files. So you mentioned the big reveal where, you know, we suspect Section 31 or someone nefarious is making him believe that he, you know, electively chose to install the implants. But there is a, a flash of, like, deleted memories that are going through his visual range as he's deleting them. And this took some this took some pause-on-pause pause skill, I tell you. Because I, I went through some of those, and a lot of the shots that show up very briefly there are from season two, so it's new memories that Rutherford has made with Tendi. Um, but there are also some other interesting uh, little shots there that are kind of hilarious. There is a shot taken of the 2381 New Year's celebration where Tendi and Rutherford are wearing glasses that say 2381, and apparently those glasses never go away, no matter what year it is, and I guess we're just going to have to accept that. Um, there's yeah. <laughs> there's another shot of Tendi and Rutherford playing the uh, like Chinese finger trap, those things that I think there's an episode of TNG where Data you know can't get his fingers out of those. I don't think that appears in an episode. And then I think possibly your favorite one because it features Ransom is Rutherford and Tendi drawing a naked posing Ransom. I mean, who wouldn't sign up for a portrait <laughs> class where you yeah. get to ogle? ransom <laughs> i mean the man does work out so hard to argue with that but kind of neat little little tidbits of of other little shots that we see during that during that thing the the chinese finger trap romance angle i think that really plays into your <sighs> <laughs> i realize this is hard Tendi for you take your time Ford romance <laughs> angle <laughs> is that that is just such a cute moment and yeah. i I really wish I had done more research because I feel like that's actually shown up in romantic comedies before. Oh, has it? Hmm. It could be. 
You know, honestly, I'm not sure if the show is actually going to go there, but I think the setup is there. Hey, just do it. Just do it, Mike. If you're listening, which you probably aren't, just just do it. Make them a thing. It's not doesn't need to be a big deal. It's it's the it's it's Tenderford and the Cerritos. Tenderford Ritos. Just make it happen. Tender Rito <laughs> Oh, okay. That could work. Tender Rito Tendy or <laughs> You know what? Let's move on. I want to talk about Tendy Tend- actually for a moment. Rito or <laughs> We're gonna have to make a poll because we can't just, just pick just one. Uh, but let's briefly talk about Tendy because you know what? She's going places. She, you know, spends a lot of the episode avoiding Dr. Tana, her boss. But um, she gets, looks like, I don't know about a promotion, but she's getting generalized, like, science training, senior officer science training to work on the bridge, which is great. And I think we're leading to the possibly the best joke of Lower Deck so far. Who the fuck is Jadzia Dex? I, I don't recall this. <laughs> uh, don't remind me of it. Because I nearly died the first time <laughs> I heard this joke. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god so like the the entire series there's constant callbacks and everybody just accepts them and it's yeah. all like yeah we know who this person is despite that there's no reason they should know who that person is <laughs> and this is the first time somebody makes a reference and Jazia Dex is actually kind of an important character she's the one yeah. who figured out what was going on with the Bajoran wormhole that's right and <laughs> <laughs> Their chief medical officer. <laughs> Never heard of that. Who the fuck is Jazia Dax? <laughs> Dying laughing. Like, literally, <laughs> you are doing this podcast with a ghost. <laughs> and then she immediately turns around and named up Spock. Yes. And I'm just like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Like, that joke is just hits on so many. <laughs> you know, this is a cool place to see Tendi's character go. I, I feel like all they've already kind of run into trouble because she's a medical officer and a lot of her activities don't happen in sickbay anyway. So to have her transition to a general sciences role makes a lot of sense. I'd love to see her work on the bridge. I don't even think we've see, we see her on the bridge at all. It's usually Boimbler and Mariner that are at Ops and Con, but nope, we're gonna we're gonna get some Tendi on the bridge. That's what I want to see. So. And it's not going to be a McCoy on the bridge situation where she's just <laughs> hanging out because he likes to hang out. That's right. Yeah, McCoy had a problem. But still, Tenley's getting generalized science training. Great, great for her. You know what? And this opens a really, like, just fantastic opportunity for storylines. So I do wonder, though, is she being, like, sent to the command track? Because there mm. is a whole arc in TNG where Troy is doing her command track training. Yes, you're right. Hmm. And I'm wondering if this is going to be a Troy on the bridge situation. I mean, Hmm. obviously, Tendi hasn't crashed the Cerritos, yes. (laughs) I want to see her her in the command scenarios, the holographic scenarios that Rutherford had to deal with, just to see how she'd do. I bet she wouldn't get all the kindergartners killed. That's that's probably a given. (laughs) There's still time. time. (laughs) That's true well gosh wow this episode is going so long because there's so many things to talk about let's see what else we got let's talk about the new locations we see in this episode there are actually a couple of them um the the first two are just really brief mentions or brief visualizations we see the inside of a captain's yacht which i don't think we've seen in star trek so far right we know that they exist but we've never seen the inside of one and we briefly do i think we have have we so i i'm not surprised you forgot a lot of people like to forget insurrection. 
Is there any captains yet? Oh, that's right. Yes, you're totally right. Yep, Picard takes out the captain's yacht after he realizes his breasts are starting to firm up (laughs) and needs to figure out why that is. (laughs) Wait, am I misremembering that episode? I feel like you probably are. Oh, no. Well, (laughs) I can't say we've seen the interior of one quite like we do here in, in Insurrection, do we? Well, I mean, it's a very different context, but you know what? That's true. There's no firming up happening in this episode. Enterprise, I think most of the Enterprises, uh, definitely the D&E had Captain Shots, even though we didn't see them. Yes. In TNG, Voyager actually had an arrow shuttle rather than a Captain Shot. Which we never saw, I believe. Uh, (laughs) In DS9, the Defiant could actually detach its deflector segment for some reason. Oh, which I got the feeling they were trying to make that the captain's yacht. Yeah, <laughs> never happened. Not a lot of sense. <laughs> but it's cool to see a little uh, a little tease of what the interior of the captain's yacht is in here. I mean, really briefly, what's really funny is they mentioned the rubber ducky room, and you know what? And this this is almost a damn it, Mike segment. But part of it is it's you know it's, so okay. Let me back up. So there is a joke in the Enterprise D MSD when they made the MSD, the master systems display that shows up in engineering. They included random gag objects. So there's like a race car in the shuttle bay. And one of them is a rubber ducky or a duck that shows up in the MSD. And guess what? The rubber ducky room is now canon. That is now a thing that actually exists on ships. And what it is, I don't know. I'm not sure I want to know. But it's no longer a outside of show joke. It is a real thing. And now it has to be defined. What, what is the rubber duck room? What is it? I <laughs> no need one knows. to know. <laughs> but that is one of those things that I feel like it is a callback to the evolution of visuals in entertainment. Mm. You would have never picked that up in TNG. Low def, just. Yeah, no way to see you it. Really yeah. couldn't have seen what was going on there. That's right. I've been a fan of Star Trek since I was, well, I mean, as far back as I can remember. I remember having arguments with my brother when I was five about (laughs) whether or not the Enterprise in TNG needed to refuel or whether it had a (laughs) perpetual motion power generation. And this is one of those things where as technology has evolved and as things like you you didn't load an episode into your computer and analyze scene by scene. Yeah, it was not a thing. Yeah. So now they've done high def remasters that people are going back and looking at these things. Yes. And outside of being a super geek where you listened to all the interviews or downloaded all those contents on your, you know, 486 or Commodore 64 <laughs> right. with your landline phone network where you were <laughs> dialing up, Yeah, you wouldn't have known these things. And I'm just really <laughs> interested to see, like, are we going to continue to get these visual gags that the writers, directors, producers, art designers put in for themselves? <laughs> because honestly, I think giving that up is really a huge loss for the IP. I totally agree. But you know, as we've talked about before, this show has the condition of being both canon, so it's taking place legitimately in-universe, and it's like a self-reflective comedy show. 
So this joke, when they say, oh, the rubber ducky room, is both making fun of the illustrators doing this for TNG at the time, but then it's now in-universe, so it's this confusing thing where, like, now we have to define what the rubber ducky room is because it exists. So now we're in this situation. Great, great work, everyone. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think they're going to come out with a very nebulous definition of canon because one of the things i have discovered with star trek over the years is you have to watch each thing as its own thing if you're too aware of the ip you know every episode of every season of every series sure you run into a situation where you're looking at it and going this doesn't make sense because in episode seven of season two and you can go through the mental and verbal gymnastics of explaining that away. Right. But ultimately, that doesn't matter. You've got to take a step back and say, by itself, in the context of the series it is in, is this a good episode? You're right. Every episode is half an island unto itself. Well, I mean, of course I'm right. I'm, I'm always right. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. Did you not get the plaque I sent you? <laughs> uh, no, it uh, definitely isn't in the trash somewhere. Uh, but let's uh, let's move on to the act, potentially the coolest new location that we've seen in the show, and that is Cetacean Ops. And I know you said in a previous episode that you kind of wish it just be- remained a mythical location, but now it's a real place. How do you feel about that? They're, they they show a lot of detail of it too, uh, along with the beluga whales that live in the Cetacean Ops, uh, potentially for or I guess they say for navigational purposes, whatever that means. I, I don't recall ever referencing Cetacean Ops in previous <laughs> episodes. Hmm, Sorry, convenient. I think you're misremembering. And if you <laughs> take the time to upload the segment of me both denying Cetacean Ops and denying ever referencing Cetacean Ops, I will unfriend you and do my own podcast called Stavros is Full of Shit. <laughs> You know the hilarious part about Station Ops, though, is the belugas that they meet in there. Aside from constantly trying to get Rutherford to go skinny dipping with them and giving terrible medical advice, um, I think they uh, they pop out Boimler and, and are like, "Don't let him dry out," and like splash water on him as medical advice, which is I amazing. Think his blowhole is broken. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god! No, they do a fantastic job. And in my first watch through, because like I mentioned, I always watch with subtitles on. Yeah. Like somehow in my first watch through, I was so engrossed, I ignored the subtitles. Yeah. Never noticed that their speech is subtitled. Yeah. (laughs) But here's the real question. They're wearing uniforms. Why are they wearing uniforms? And they outrank the lower deckers. Can they make decisions? Can they order them around? I would think so. But here's the bigger question. Obviously, they work and live in Cetacean Ops. Right. Why is Cetacean Ops not designed for them to be able to interface with it? (laughs) See, this is another point where, like, they ask about that and, like, everyone yells at Boimler for asking about it. This is another obvious plot hole, fourth wall breaking moment where they're like, don't give me that. We need a, we have a plot to work through here. Stop, stop making (laughs) obvious suggestions. Stop questioning things. Just roll with it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that I thought it was really cool. I think potentially the best part of Station Ops is the beach ball with the De- Starfleet Delta on it. <laughs> I feel like I, I like feel like a desire to get one somehow, but I don't think they exist. You know, I'm going to be perfectly honest. I never even noticed that. Yeah. But here's the thing. I think you're wrong. I Uh-oh. think they exist. 
and I think we need to have a beach party with a beach ball <laughs> with the Delta logo on it. Make it happen. Uh, summer is just ending, so this is going to be a very cold beach party. Well, you know what? we got a long ways to go before season three. That's true. We can uh, we can make it happen before season three drops. That's true. Well, let's see. A couple of the random things to mention before we end this episode. There is a koala, again, where Boimler says, I saw a koala, as he has a near-death experience. And, of course, Tendi says, shush, don't mention such things, because she herself has seen the koala that the ascending crewman says in the season one episode of Moist Vessel. Well, so. heard about, now not seen. The universe is balanced on a <laughs> koala, right? I think so. The crewman that ascends definitely sees it. It's kind of unclear if Tendi sees it. I think the real question is, why is it smiling? And was it smiling when Boimler saw it? A good, great question. But some fun internal consistency there. And speaking of internal consistency, there is the one of the ending shots where Tendi's in sickbay. And there's the same Bajoran dude in there in the same bio bed that got freaked out by Rutherford giving his medical assessment when Rutherford's kind of trying out all the other departments. The same Bajoran guy's there. Does that guy ever leave sickbay? He kind of mentions that he is always in there. I feel like that man just lives in sickbay. Probably a hypochondriac, which is not a good thing for uh, Star Trek. Probably not. Because the Federation in 20-whatever, 80, probably should be more evolved than having hypochondriac. I think you're right. It could be a, a Barkley situation happening with this guy. Oh, God. Why are we bringing up Barkley? <laughs> I mean, let's do a real quick wish list. What do we want to see in season three? Ooh. Well, we have to have the resolution to Freeman's arrest, obviously. I want to see Mariner character development. I want to see her continue to like work on resolution of this. I want to see her kind of like working on opening up to people with comedic effects. I think that would be pretty hilarious to see. Jellico, I mean, come on, guys. Make it happen. <laughs> you know what? But there's a couple of other things. I really want to see a continuation of Rutherford's implant and where it yes. came from. Yes, of course. You know what? I really want to see a growth of the Beckett and Jen relationship. I would love to see, like I mentioned, a courtroom trial episode. Mm. And you know what? I think the last thing I want to see, the ballroom dancing getting canceled. If we can do that every few episodes, and you know it's the same scene. Like, they don't edit it. They don't change it. They just replay those same few seconds. <laughs> it just becomes a running gag. Blowing your heels. Yeah. <laughs> that would be amazing. Uh, actually, you know what? I, I, I think we need more of Riker and the Titan and another Boimler. I, I thought for sure they were going to come back to that during this season, but I guess not. And there's this other Boimler running around with Riker. I want to see something come of that. I, I feel kind of teased. I, I thought for sure that they would go back to that well, but I guess not. I, mean, I need to see more. You know, I was talking to a friend of mine about that. Oh. And he's all like, yeah, you know, I really want to see Boimler die, right? Oh. You want him to die and drown in Cetacean Oh, interesting. And then have Alt-Boimler come in and Mariner have to deal with, well, you're not my friend. Oh. My friend died in Cetacean Ops, oh. which is a fantastic storyline. But I yeah. feel like we're kind of retreading ground. Farscape mm. already did. Okay. I really hope they come up with something clever to do with Dupla Boimler from the Titan. Yeah. He needs to come back. I think we both agree on that, at least. Yeah, definitely. Not as a main character, though. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, are we missing anything else, or should we wrap up our coverage of Season 2 of Lower Decks? 
Well, I mean, obviously we're missing something. We're always oh, missing something. Of course. As I soon mean, as the recording stops happening, I immediately say... We should have oh, talked about this. We talk about this thing. Yes. But, regardless of all that, my cabinet is kind of empty. Mm. And that means we should probably call it a season. I think so. Of course, we'll be back for season three coverage in an episodic format. But, if you need something else to tickle your fancy... You can keep an eye out for off-season episodes by following us on Twitter, at Lower Dorks. And of course, if that's still not enough for you, and you're jonesing for a little justice, just wait till a planet near you blows up, and you'll find your favorite podcaster being taken away in chains. I don't know, man. If I have the power to destroy planets, I'm not sure I would still be running this podcast. Just saying. Wait. Do you think you're people's favorite podcaster? I feel like our audience is not quite large enough for that. <laughs> I guess we'll find out later. Never. Never.